This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. My sister was on a trip for work in Chicago, and she got on an elevator and looked over and realized that she was sharing the same elevator space as one of the Chicago Bears. I wouldn't have known who it was that she was standing next to. My sister happens to be a huge Chicago Bears fan. And, you know, maybe there's a few, like, high-profile players, quarterback, receivers, running backs that, you know, we might know their names. Uh, I think this was an offensive lineman, you know, somebody difficult to pick out, just bumping into them by chance. So what do you say to someone that you run into that's, that's famous, that, that's known, that's celebrity or professional athlete? How do, you, how do you begin a conversation like that, stuck in an elevator with somebody? What, what, what would you say? I have no idea how to begin a conversation that way. How to, how to have a normal conversation without appearing like I'm a huge fan. It, it's difficult. I don't usually bump into famous people. I mean, most of the famous people I've seen are because I've bought a ticket to go see them on a stage or playing on a field. I don't really get a personal interaction. And I wonder what, what those conversations are like when you have that unexpected meeting with, with, with somebody. Now, I, I bump into people from church outside of the church building and in and around town, and, and those unexpected conversations are sometimes interesting. Sometimes I know exactly what to say and the conversation is easy. There are other times where I don't even recognize you when I see you in the wrong place, uh, not here on a Sunday morning. It's somewhere else. It's, oh, oh, hi. I don't, I don't expect to see you. And, and sometimes those conversations are, are slow in starting up because it takes my brain a little while to click in and understand who you are and why I'm seeing you outside of Parkview. It just My brain works that way. But those, those chance meetings are, are interesting. That's, that's the topic of our sermon this morning, these appearances of Jesus after the resurrection as he was present in the lives of, of, of a, a variety of people and, and the interactions they had together. That's what we're going to talk about today. And t- the sermon's going to be different today than, than usual. We're going we're gonna to read through these uh, exchanges, these interactions as Jesus appeared to different people. And what I want to do is learn from them specifically. And so instead of taking one story and just unpacking it and me talking, we're going to, we're going to focus a lot on Scripture today. And as we do, I want, to, I want to look at two very particular things about each of these interactions. First, I want us to think about the expectations that people brought to Jesus. Because that's, that's really what, what kind of defines our relationship with Jesus as we, as we approach him most of us bring to that exchange a certain amount of expectation for Jesus, things that we, we believe to be true, things that we hope will happen. And the second thing I want to realize through these interactions is how Jesus confronted those expectations, how he addressed them, how, what he did, in, and how those expectations were either met or resolved or turned or confronted. What, what is it that... that Jesus and the reality of who Jesus is did to those expectations. That's what I want to focus on as we read through these stories together. We're going to begin in John chapter 20, in verse 11. If you want to open your Bibles and read along, that's where we'll begin. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you have a, a phone or tablet and want to use the version app, you can open up the app, search under events for Parkview Finley, and read along in the version app as well. Here's the first appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. 
They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now this first appearance was with Mary. She, she was there at the tomb mourning the loss of Jesus. And as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb. Very, very courageous thing to do as you're mourning the loss of a loved one to, to happen to take a look. And what, what she found there, <laughs> significantly unexpected. She expected to see Jesus lying on the slab in the tomb, and yet he wasn't there. Instead were two angels. And I find it interesting that Mary didn't react at all to seeing two angels sitting in Jesus' tomb instead of his body. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? She told someone to take Jesus away. And she turned and started talking to Jesus. Though she didn't know it was Jesus, she thought it was a gardener. What she expected of this person behind her was that he would give her answers. She wanted to know where Jesus was. Where have you taken his body? Tell me, I will go get him. She didn't know who he was at first, but, but her desire was to know where Jesus was. Jesus met those expectations, confronting what her expectation was with the reality that he, here he is. His body is right there. And all she needed to do was stop and look at him to open her eyes and see who he truly was, to, to, to listen to his voice, to know that she was already in his presence. And all it took was one word, Mary. One word to snap her out of her grief. One word to, to open her perspective, to realize who it was that she was already talking to. Isn't that such a, a realistic representation of, of what our lives with Jesus are like? As we, we focus so intently on the things that are right in front of us, as, as we allow our, our view to become so myopic, that we tune, we tune things out and we get so focused on work, on things that need to be done on tragedy and grief. And we, we, get, we get so wrapped up in, in dealing with those things that sometimes we fail to recognize the presence of Jesus. We fail to open our eyes and see that he's there. We fail to hear his voice. And we miss out on what he would be doing through us and in us if we could just hear him and see him. And what did Jesus say to Mary? Don't hold on to me. It would be a natural response for Mary to, to want to cling to Jesus, to want to cherish this moment and have it last. But Jesus had instructions for her. Go, go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Incredible moment here between Jesus and, and Mary. But not the only appearance that Jesus made. Matthew tells us that Jesus greeted 
other women as they were leaving from the tomb in chapter 28, verses 8 through 10. The women who had been there hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This is just a brief encounter. We see these women who have already been at the tomb, who have seen it empty, and they're going back to tell the disciples that, the, that Jesus is not in the tomb. And they had these two emotions. They were afraid, and they were filled with joy. It doesn't tell us why they felt those things, but that's, what they, that's the way that they responded to the empty tomb, full of joy, maybe because Jesus wasn't there, and they, they were, were hopeful that what he said about rising on the third day was true, full of fear. Why? Maybe because of the power exerted. Maybe because they weren't entirely sure that Jesus had risen bodily from the grave. Maybe his body had been taken, what Mary thought was true. But one thing I do know is they don't seem at all surprised to be greeted by Jesus on the way back to tell the disciples. They left the empty tomb expecting to see some kind of evidence of what had happened to Jesus. And so when he appeared to them and said, Greetings, their natural response was to worship him, to bow at his feet and to grab hold, to clasp onto him and worship him. Jesus met those expectations, confronting them with the reality that he truly had risen from the tomb. Their observations were correct and gave them a message to take to the disciples. Find the next appearance of Jesus. Both Mark and Luke tell us of two disciples who were traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they had a unique experience as Jesus walked along beside them and the, the exchange that happened. This is Luke chapter 24. Luke's a little more descriptive for this part of the story, and so we're going to use his account beginning in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, they were, walk, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have, that have happened there in these, in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, Stay with us. It's, it's, it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now these two disciples on the road to Emmaus were talking with Jesus, but they had no idea that it was him. Mark, in his story, adds this little detail of information that Luke doesn't. It says that when Jesus appeared to them, he kept them from recognizing who he was because he appeared to them in a different form. Now there was something about his appearance that was altered, something about the way he looked that was changed so that these two men would not recognize him as Jesus. But they would talk with him, and, and, and through that exchange, they began to, to reveal their, their feelings about the things that had taken place, about what had happened to Jesus, the man that they said was a prophet, And they revealed to Jesus that, that they were feeling somewhat disappointed. That, that this Jesus, they, they expected to be the Messiah who was going to redeem Israel, who was going to, to elevate their people to their rightful place and throw off Roman rule. And, and he died. And it's the third day, and he wasn't in the tomb. Those were the things that, that were said about him. And if he truly was the Messiah, wouldn't he have? redeemed the people of Israel. That, that was what they believed the Messiah to be, and yet he hadn't done it. They, nothing about their situation, the situation of their people had changed. And Jesus confronted their belief about him as the Messiah with the reality of who he was. He truly was the Messiah. He had risen from the grave, and yet he had a greater purpose than redeeming Israel. His purpose was to redeem Israel all people, to bring about salvation for the world. And he confronted their expectations, helping them understand that their, their understanding of what Scripture said about Messiah was flawed, that it wasn't a true representation of who Jesus came to be. And the disciples had an experience with Jesus that changed them. As they listened as Jesus told them who he was and, and explained his role through scriptures and talked to them all about himself. He broke bread with them. Their eyes were open. They realized who Jesus was and, and the truth of what he was saying. And then he was gone. He disappeared from before their sight. And they realized how wrong they had been about who he was. They went back and talked to the 11 disciples and they discovered that, that Jesus at some point had appeared to to Simon Peter as well. And we don't have the, the details of that story in Scripture. I would love to know what that interaction looked like. But Jesus was continuing to confront the expectations of people with the reality of who he was. The next appearance of Jesus takes place in John uh, chapter 20 as he appeared to 10 of his disciples together, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands, showed them his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, 
they are not forgiven. At this point, the disciples have already heard so much about Jesus appearing to other people. You think about what that would have been like for, for those men who felt like they were close to Jesus, closer to Jesus than maybe anybody else. And yet they had been hearing about, about Jesus reappearing after his resurrection, interacting with other people who were then coming to tell them the news. Hey, we just saw Jesus. And yet he hadn't come to see them. Not yet. I imagine they would have been expecting to see Jesus at any moment. Expecting to, to be in his presence again. Hoping that they were as close to Jesus as they thought they had been. Hoping that he would honor them with his presence. Expecting to see him. And he confronted their expectation by fulfilling it. He didn't just appear to them, he empowered them to uniquely carry his message to the world. Now Luke's gospel adds a little detail to this part of the story that, that draws our attention to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus said to his disciples, here, I'm hungry, do you have something to eat? And they gave him broiled fish and he ate it. Uh, an interesting detail that, uh, that reminds us of the reality of Jesus, the resurrected Lord who is alive. The last few verses in this portion of the story that we read, they, they sound very similar to the, the commissioning of the disciples that we're going to talk about next week with, with the ascension of Jesus. And, and this part of the story in John seems to be a summary of what took place there. It sounds very familiar to that. We continue with this story in verse 24. And we learn why there were only ten disciples present at this first appearance. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas missed out on the first encounter with the disciples. But when he heard about it, he was skeptical very pragmatic, very logical. Uh, was Jesus really? I'm not going to believe that it was truly Jesus until I can see the proof on his body. And that's what Thomas expected. That if Jesus truly had risen from the grave, this truly was the resurrected Lord, that he would have that proof to validate his identity. And Thomas wasn't going to believe until he saw it. Jesus confronted that expectation by providing the very proof that Thomas needed. Come look. Touch the place where the nails touched my side, where the spear was thrust. See and believe. And not only did Jesus provide proof, he challenged Thomas to not let his doubts win out over his belief in Jesus. And while it was important for Thomas to believe, Jesus let him know that those who chose to believe without seeing that proof would be blessed by that faith. By believing without seeing. We'll continue on the story in chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. After, after Jesus had appeared again to his disciples by the sea 
of Galilee. It, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early the next morning, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Well, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net, Full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now this part of the story, the disciples were not expecting to see Jesus. They were going about life as it was. Back out in the fishing boat, needing to eat, needing maybe to make some money, they went back to the boat. Notice the, the similarity between the first time Jesus encountered his disciples and this experience with Jesus. The first time, the disciples were in and around their boats, tending the nets. And Jesus said, leave all that behind. Come and follow me. Now, Jesus is seeing them in a boat, catching fish, trying to catch fish. And he calls out to them. And that was the expectation the disciples had. They were, they were just out hoping to catch some fish. And so Jesus met that expectation. He confronted that expectation. You want to catch fish? Have you caught anything yet? You've been out all night. Where, where are the fish that you're looking for? Uh, no, we don't, we don't have any fish. These are professional fishermen. Well, they were before they began following Jesus. They know what to do. They know how to find fish. And yet, nothing all night long. And Jesus said, well, if you really want to catch fish, just throw your net over on the other side of the boat. Throw it on the right side. See what happens. We've been out here all night. We've tried every side this boat has. There are no fish getting in the net. But they obeyed Jesus. They threw their net in on the right side of the boat. And the net filled with fish. 153 fish. I don't know why we have this number in Scripture. I don't know what significance it has, the fishermen or the net. Probably it was just so large it was impossible to believe that many fish had flocked to the net that they threw into the water. But it was so heavy they couldn't bring it up into the boat. And the net never broke. The disciples hadn't recognized Jesus until they were willing to obey and saw him do the miraculous. Now, they didn't understand why he would call on them to throw the net on the other side of the, the boat, on the right side. It wouldn't have made any sense to fishermen. One side of the boat or the other. It's all the same water. It's all the same fish. Why? What's the, what's the point of this exercise? And yet, they were willing to obey. And when they obeyed, they realized what Jesus was doing. And they experienced the miraculous. Again, we have this great reminder of our relationship with Jesus. 
this, this, this powerful example of, of what happens in us when we come to the Lord. And we don't always understand what it is that he's asking us to do. We read through the Bible, and we read a lot of, of complex words and, and ideas, things that, are, that go beyond our understanding, things that are, that are, frankly, a mystery. Until we learn to obey. Until we learn to live according to God's word. And then we begin to discover the truth of what God's word does in our lives. We begin to discover what it is he's calling us to do and who he's calling us to be, and the value that exists in, in defying the logic of, of the world we live in today, to be obedient. And we see how God is working to draw us close to him, how God is using that obedience to draw other people to him. The miraculous that we never realize until we step forward in obedience. It's, it's, it's an important reminder to us of how he works in our lives. Then we continue to see Jesus appearing in the lives of people and, and interacting with him. And the, the continuation of this story is in John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, here, here is a, a deeper conversation between Jesus and Peter. And we don't have a lot of information about what Peter was expecting of Jesus. However, I would suggest that from their interaction, Peter was expecting, hoping for an opportunity to prove himself to the Lord. And I, I draw that from his, his adamant response when Jesus asked, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know, you know that I love you. This would have been a very difficult time for Peter. Can you imagine what it would have been like for him to be reunited with Jesus after having been told, you're, you're going to deny me, Peter. And Peter said, no, 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 no. I would never do that. I would die before I denied you. And yet, when he was outside waiting while Jesus was on trial, found himself saying, no, I don't, I don't know that man. No, no, I'm, I'm not one of his followers. No, and when he denied knowing Christ the third time, the rooster crowed and Jesus looked him in the eye. And they both knew what Peter had done. Can you imagine the guilt and shame that would have been weighing on Peter? The, this, the shame that would have, have been hanging over their interaction, both of them knowing what Peter had done. As they were having this conversation, Peter, do you love me? Do you know that I love you? And Jesus took this opportunity to restore Peter in several ways. He restored Peter's relationship with him. As, as 
they were, they were talking. Jesus also restored Peter's confidence in himself as, as Peter adamantly proclaimed his love for the Lord. Jesus simply commissioned him to, to feed the sheep, to care for the flock, giving him responsibility, giving him a role, reminding Peter that he trusted him and that Peter could trust himself. And Jesus restored Peter's understanding of who he was in the eyes of Christ. It was three times that Peter had denied Christ. Three times Jesus asked Peter the same question. Three times Peter affirmed his love for Christ. And three times Jesus invited Peter to step forward into this responsibility to feed the sheep. It's, a, it's an incredible example of the way that, that Christ forgives us and restores us, showing us how we can begin to forgive ourselves and move past the, the guilt and shame that plague us because of our sin. It's an important lesson for us to learn because we all approach Christ with expectation. We, we, we have these examples of Jesus appearing to, to different people and, and the expectation that they brought to that exchange and how Jesus addressed that. In our lives, when we approach Jesus, we have those same kinds of expectations. Maybe they're the expectations you brought the first time that you stepped into the presence of the Lord and began to understand. Maybe they're expectations that you still bring to that relationship. But some of those expectations are, are healthy and right. When we approach the Lord, we, we expect to find love and grace and peace. And that is what, what we find in Him. When we approach the Lord, we expect to be amazed, to be unable to, to fully understand everything about Him. In the depth of His, his nature as God, the, the overwhelming quality of the perfection of His love and mercy and grace for us, they, they're, they're difficult to, to fully comprehend. Those are, those are some expectations that, are, that really are true. But we also sometimes approach him with expectations that, that harm our relationship, that harm our view of Christ because they're wrong. There are times we, we approach Christ and we expect him to do what we want him to do, even though it's not a part of his will. And we come before the Lord, inviting him to intervene in our lives, to, to fix problems that we've caused for ourselves. And we make deals with the Lord. We make ultimatums of for God to fulfill and we beg him, God, if you could just fix this, I'll read my Bible every day for the rest of my life. If you could just, if you could just resolve this problem that I'm facing, I'll, I'll be in church every Sunday. I'll never miss. And, and we, we hope that he will erase consequences, provide the miraculous. And, and we make demands of, of God that, that he are not a part of his will. They're just the things that we want. Sometimes we approach the Lord, and, and, and our expectation is that, that as we approach Him, He'll look at us as unworthy. And we have that expectation because that's, that's really the way we view ourselves. When we, when we fall to sin, when, when, when we realize the, the, the full weight of the, the, the things that we've done. And we feel that guilt and shame. We come before the Lord sometimes feeling like we're not, we're not worthy of his love and grace. We're not, we're not worthy to be forgiven. And, and we expect that that's what, what we'll find in God, that he won't forgive us or that he can't forgive us because we're so focused on, on the ugliness of our sin. We're so focused on the shame that we feel because of the things that we've done. And we begin to, to 
to place that on God, that expectation that we're unworthy. What we find is that we're confronted with the reality of Jesus. As we bring expectations to him, he confronts us with the reality, the truth of who he is. Now, the stories we have in Scripture are of face-to-face appearances as Jesus met expectations and defied them and fulfilled them and, and showed individuals who he truly was. In our lives, we experience that confrontation in different ways. We're drawn to the presence of, of Jesus. Our eyes are open to the reality of who he is. Sometimes when we're listening to a song, and the words of the song, the music, just draw us close to the Lord. And we have this moment where we're confronted with the truth of who he is. And, and that's where it happens. There are other times where we're reading God's word and we come across a passage that, that, just, that just really opens our eyes. And, and we realize his presence and we see the truth of his reality. Maybe it's in the middle of a sermon that we're listening to. Maybe it's a conversation we're having with someone that makes a statement in a unique way. And we think, wait a minute, what did you say? And, and, it, and it, it just sticks and we can't let go of that, that word or that phrase. And then suddenly it dawns on us and, and, it, and it draws our attention to the Lord. Maybe it's nature for you that, that opens your eyes to who the Lord is. And you walk down a trail in the wood and you just feel this connection with the Lord. And it helps you to think clearly about the reality of Jesus. Maybe you've been confronted by tragedy, diagnosis, the loss of a loved one. And, and in those moments of grief, you find yourself open to the Lord and you hear him and see him with a clarity that you've not had before. Maybe, maybe for you, it's a, it's a life of hearing bits and pieces about Jesus, of reading the Bible and getting, getting small glimpses of who he is. And then finally, the last piece of the puzzle, press it into place and you see the full picture for what it is. And you have this moment of realization that this is it. And we're confronted with the reality of Jesus. And what we find in him is that he surpasses our expectations. He, he goes beyond everything we could ever have imagined about him. And proves to us that what, it, what it truly means to allow him to work in our lives, to, to allow him to lead us and guide us, to surrender all of who we are. We discover how, how clearly he knows us. How, how he made us. How he formed us. And, and that provides him with, with an incredible knowledge. But not only that, 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 that he's aware of, of, of the, the hairs on our head. He's aware of the, the, the thoughts in our minds, the, the desires of our heart. God knows us so completely that in him, and in him alone, can we find perfect guidance and direction for our lives. So there are lots of places that we look for, for that kind of guidance. That we look to friends for advice, family members. But when we begin diving into God's word, praying significantly for his, for his leading and for his guiding, we, we discover how perfectly he knows what we should do. And how simple it is for us to discover where he's leading us, who he's calling us to be, and what he's calling us to do. And usually it's not until we begin to be obedient to his word that we discover what that calling looks like. We don't always understand what his, what his word's telling us to do. 
There's a lot of things that, that Scripture would tell us that, that, that defy the world around us. But when we make that decision to, to step forward in faithfulness and be obedient to what God's Word is calling us to do, we begin to discover so much more about where He's leading us and who He's calling us to be. And the mystery begins to unfold before our eyes. And we discover clarity through that obedience as we discover His presence, what He's doing in us and what He will do through us as He draws us closer to Him and allows us to draw others closer to Him through our lives as well. He surpasses all of our expectations about who He is and He surpasses our expectations about what He will do in our lives, about the grace and forgiveness that He provides by the blood of Christ. It's a grace that we don't deserve. A mercy that's overwhelming. He loves us when we wouldn't expect anyone else to. And He loves us so completely and perfectly that it finally enables us to, to see ourselves as He sees us. Without the guilt, without the shame, but as forgiven by the blood of Christ. We discover that in Him and in Him alone.